0: Welcome to In the Room, Episode 6. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you don't know, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhugley.com and also on Twitter at at ryanhugley, that's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. The concept of the podcast is simple. I want to bring you into the room with pastors, authors, and artists for conversations about the craft of ministry. And as always, I want you to do more than just listen. I want to ask you to contribute to the conversation. You can join in online using the hashtag In the room. Now, in this episode, I'm talking with Jared Wilson. He's the author of books like Gospel Wakefulness, The Wonder Working God, and The Pastor's Justification. In our conversation, we discuss the importance of pastoral presence when people are suffering, we talk about some of the most common problems that pastors face, and whether or not it's necessary to correct other pastors publicly online. Earlier this year, Jared wrote a blog post about and to Mark Driscoll that I struggled with a little bit, and so it was great to be able to talk to him about it personally. Jared was so much fun to talk to, so regardless of what else you may be doing right now, I want to invite you into the room for my conversation with Jared Wilson. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, I know a little bit, but for some who may not be super familiar with you, I was hoping we could start by talking a little bit about your background. Okay. And so, uh, I know that you're out in Vermont now getting ready to make a transition out to Kansas city, but where, where are you actually from originally?
1: Well, I was born in Brownsville, Texas, grew up in the Rio Grande Valley down in South Texas and, um, grew up, spent most of my childhood in Texas. Uh, but then lived for twelve years in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, beginning of college. Okay. Uh, before we moved to Vermont, so
0: were your parents believers?
1: They were, yes, yep. I grew up in okay. the church, uh, Southern Baptist Church.
0: Yep. Okay. So when did you, when and how did you come to faith?
1: Well, you know, depending on what what date I want to pinpoint. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had sort of the um, you know traditional kind of. Um, I was probably five or six years old when I walked an aisle. Yep. Uh, prayed with someone, you know, with a counselor in a, in a counseling room was baptized shortly thereafter that. Um, You know, when I look back now, I, I don't really have a real reason to to doubt the the legitimacy of that conversion experience. But when I was about 12 or 13, I went through another sort of, um, you know, which is, I guess, typical for a lot of adolescents. Yeah. Wondering if I knew what I was doing when I was a kid and that sort of thing. And, Um, had kind of a crisis of faith then. And, um, uh, you know, so more intentional, more, more conscious of what I was doing. I think I remember it more my 12 year old experience, uh, than my five year old experience. But, um, you know, if you see kind of, um, salvation is in in some sense, a journey, you know, I I think the, you know, the work of my salvation was accomplished by Christ. And so I don't have a doubt about, um, whether I'm actually saved or not, but when I have to like put a flag down on this is the date of my conversion, it's really difficult for yeah. me to do that.
0: <clears throat> Which to some extent was a I mean, isn't that part of what you talk about in gospel wakefulness? And just, in just the idea that, I mean, just tell me, I didn't plan on this, yeah. but tell me a little bit about like what the, <clears throat> what the, uh, theory or the idea was behind gospel wakefulness and what you mean by that. Cause I know that's a really common term in your language. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, gospel wakefulness is, is like revival, um, but on the, on the personal scale or on the individual scale. Gotcha. Um, so if you take sort of the same kind of premise that we would apply to the corporate, uh, event of revival, sort of a, a special act uh, of the Holy Spirit where there seems to be this kind of quantum leap in sanctification, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the Spirit working in sort of fast forward or something like sure, that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just found, you know, in, in my own life, um, you know, an experience, you know, that I had uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, for me, um, I don't believe that I was saved then, but I, I felt the gospel receive the gospel in a, in a way or heard the gospel at a time of really just absolute brokenness that um, just took me really like warp speed yeah. into, you know, the beauty of Christ. And so as i begin to kind of tease that out and talk about that experience, I started hearing from a lot of other people who had similar experience. And for some of them, that moment was somewhat simultaneous with their conversion. And that's usually I find, um, Typical for people who didn't grow up in the church. Right. So there was a more stark contrast of what really they're leaving behind. Uh, but for a lot of people who grew up in the church or who had kind of almost like a religious sort of conversion, um, you know, their faith was saving. But then there's some you know, point where they really grasp the gospel for the first time. And usually it's in the midst of some kind of depressive you know, season or, or dark season. Yeah. Where um, the Spirit of Christ, you know, is imparting this, you know, the, the message of grace, the same message of grace. It's not a different right. gospel or anything, yeah. but it just strikes us in a new way.
0: Yeah, I understand. I mean, I, I, it was my experience, too. I grew up in the church, same thing, six, seven years old, walked an aisle, little AG church on a Sunday night. And uh, I don't doubt the legitimacy of that, but <clears throat> it was definitely in my early 20s where— something different happened, yeah, you know, in the yeah. midst of that. So I, I, I really liked that about that book. So how did you get into vocational ministry? What was that? Did you, I, I don't know this part. So did you yeah. go to Bible college, seminary, all that stuff? I did
1: not. Um, you know, I, I believe that God was calling me into ministry when I was in junior high. I had a, a very distinct, uh, you know, not an audible voice, but um, just a foreign thought. It wasn't anything that had crossed my mind before I didn't yeah. have aspirations. I don't come from a ministry family. Uh, nobody was putting any kind of pressure or expectation on me at the time. I, you know, I, I wanted to be a writer. Um, but I was at a youth camp and, uh, one morning during the morning devotions, I found myself there reading about, uh, God's call of Moses in the burning bush. And yeah. I was a stutterer, uh, you know, stutterer for a long time. And, and I don't know if Moses's problem was stuttering necessarily, but there was just something in, in, in his response, um, how, you know, the, you know, the call of God seemed a foreign concept to him. Yeah. And he had all of the reasons why he wasn't qualified. Well, I kind of went through the same thing just as a, you know, in a more adolescent way, but really believe that God was calling me into this. And so, you know, all through high school, um, I didn't know what it would look like, but I believed that I was going to go into ministry. And so my first, um, ministry position, my first role, uh, was the summer I graduated high school actually. So, Uh, 20 years ago this year 1994 and I was the youth minister for Zion Chinese Baptist Church that um, it's a church that met uh, in the fellowship hall of the church that I grew up in okay and they uh, asked our uh, our youth pastor if there was a young man that you know he could recommend to come be there you know do their youth director work and uh, so that was my first sort of you know my first gig and I did 98% 98% of the things wrong.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do like Willow Creek seeker type ministry. Okay. Uh, for, you know, these Chinese kids aged. Yeah. Uh, when they said youth, they were really speaking broadly. So I had yeah. like fourth grade all the way into high school. All oh, wow. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's fun. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so, tried to do a seeker message for those kids. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you were still in Texas at that point.
1: That's right. I was in Houston, yeah.
0: and so then you ended up in Nashville, and you were working at a different church at that point, right? Different, different kind of role. What happened? Yeah, in Nashville? actually, I,
1: I didn't have a um, uh, a vocational role in in Nashville. Served as a layperson. I led small groups, taught new member classes. When we first moved, um, you know, I, I uh, interviewed at a few places, and there were a couple of places that um, you know that called us. But for my wife and I, it's always been kind of a matter of. Um, you know, if we weren't being paid to be here, would we go to church here kind yeah, of thing? That's a great question. Yeah. And so we felt really called to be a part of a church out in West Nashville and they didn't then. And, and, and never did really have a, uh, you know, a, a role for me there, a paid role for mm-hmm. me. Um, but you know, I discovered that I could serve and teach and, and what have you just as a layperson, person. And, and that was good enough for us because we wanted to be a part of that church.
0: Yeah.
1: And eventually, um, I started leading the young adult ministry there, um, you know still an unpaid position but i um you know the young adult ministry you know kind of became my um my sphere of of influence there yeah
0: i think that's awesome i mean there's a sad number of people that you know if they <clears throat> don't get a paycheck they are not willing to to serve and i i, I think that's just admirable to to jump in to, to To allow your calling to dictate, regardless of the financial piece, to allow calling to dictate where you end up digging in and serving. I think that that's really, that's a great example.
1: Yeah, but paychecks are good, too.
0: Totally, yeah. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I prefer paid to free ministry. (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, we planted a church in Nashville as well, and uh, I didn't take a salary
0: there. Do you just hate getting paid, or like, what is your thing? what's that you just hate getting paid
1: no I, I like to be paid <laughs> yeah. but yeah. uh you know they couldn't afford me and I just thought you know it was a uh, uh, and even as we grew a little bit we didn't grow a lot but as we grew a little bit we decided to give 60 percent of our uh, of our income away uh-huh. like to missions causes yeah. so even if I eventually wanted to be paid we really kind of shot ourselves in the foot
0: yeah just, yeah.
1: <laughs> just doing that so
0: <laughs> well how did you end up going from Nashville then out to Vermont where you are now and how long have you been in Vermont
1: uh, I, I, just passed the five-year mark. So I've entered my sixth year. Um, I'll be moving to Kansas city, uh, about halfway through that. So it'll be five okay. and a half years. We came August, 2009.
0: Okay,
1: okay. Um, it really just began, I mean, it was a confluence of things for, uh, for both my wife and I, um, feeling first of all, uh, disillusioned with kind of, um, suburban culture. Um, you know, seeing kind of, uh, um, you know, how that shapes, uh, you, you know, shapes you, shapes uh, your kids, that kind of thing. I'm not against the suburbs or what have you, but we just at the time just kind of had a you know, kinda, you know felt disaffected by that. And, yeah. yeah. But that was really not by itself. That was paired with sort of the Christian culture and the Bible Belt as well. And I really began to sense that that God had not wired me for even the culture that I grew up in. Um, you know, growing up in Texas, only knowing the South. I spent three years of childhood in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I had a little bit of a taste outside of the Bible Belt, but um, most of my life was spent right there in the South. And, um, you know, I just didn't feel at home. I never really felt at home in in Texas or in Tennessee, uh, more so in Texas. I didn't feel at home. But so you, there were those things. My wife was working. I mean, this kind of feeds into the no paycheck thing. But my mm-hmm. wife was working. I was, you know, uh, you know, church planter without a salary. And we, you know, our lives were upside down. I wanted to bring her home and I wanted to go to work. And so all of those things put together kind of prompted me to start looking um, elsewhere. And so the first thing we, we ruled out was we don't want to be in the Bible Belt. So let's look outside. And, um, you know, I had a, a fellow that our church had connected me with who was sort of a ministry headhunter, church staffing guy. And he was looking for roles for me, mostly on the West Coast. And um, I just started looking online at like, you know, ministersearch.com or something yeah. like that. And, um, the, you know, just a couple places I sent my resume to and, um, this church in Vermont responded, uh, which was a, a really blessed thing because you know, this is a town of about 600 people. Okay, okay. The church was only about 40 people, but they had received 200 resumes before they said no more. <laughs> they, they stopped. And, um, mine was in the second hundred and uh, you know, I I couldn't really foresee or imagine that there would be that many people who would want to come here. But a lot of them were old, you know, older guys who were kind of looking at it as kind of their retirement church, a place where they would finish their ministry. And the church was really looking for a young man um, who could kind of come and and uh, you know, as they said, then kind of take them to the next level, sort of. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Jared, I was hoping we could spend the majority of our time talking about uh, pastoral ministry and some specifics surrounding that you you've written what I think is a really excellent book on the topic that I know at this point, many have probably read that are listing the pastor's justification, but for maybe someone who's listening that has not had an opportunity to read it yet. Uh, can you tell me just a little bit about what inspired it? Why'd you, I'm always curious to hear why an author writes a particular book because I know what an undertaking it is and what's maybe the overarching message that you're trying to convey uh, in that book.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the idea is, you know, how do you apply this gospel that pastors are called to preach and that we're, you know, seeking to apply to others? How do you apply that to yourself and to the work of ministry? And I mean, it's so versatile, you know, the good news of Jesus, how um, answers all of the questions and anxieties that we would have in pastors. I think, you know, I don't know if it's something about the profession, like they say you know, uh, nine out of 10 psychology students or those who are going into psychiatry have like problems. (laughs) Sure. In some way they're trying to work their own stuff out. Based on
0: the ones that I've met, I would validate that statistic.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think that's the case. And and I wonder if pastoral ministry is like that as well. You know, it's, um, pastors tend to be, it's not, you know, it's not the, the rule, but I think it's, it's somewhat common tend to be insecure people. Um, tend to be feelers of some kind or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so I know for me, I, I have very deep uh, feelings of inadequacy um, and have, you know, have had since childhood um, strong sense of, of not measuring up, uh, uh, you know, lots of sort of self-criticism, um, you know, fear. You know, I'm just a neurotic person. Um, a lot of that has changed since my uh, you know, moment of gospel wakefulness, a lot of that, you know, the Lord has been gracious with me and and I feel like I've overcome in a lot of areas, but that's still just sort of the, you know, that, that through line is still there, just kind of neuroses for me. So, you know, what I sought to do was, um, as I began in ministry with this new paradigm this gospel centered thing. Uh, which I didn't even know that's what it was called until like it suddenly became trendy and, and right. that kind of thing. You know, for me, it was like, this is oxygen <laughs> yeah. and I want people to breathe. So this is what I'm going to be giving people. yeah. And, uh, and it just so happened it was like a part of this great movement. I feel like that, yeah. you know, that what a privilege to be a part of this wider thing that, you know, the Lord is doing. And so as it became called the gospel centered movement, um, I think it's important for pastors not just to say here's the thing that here's the new model to do ministry by but here's the thing that actually is going to empower me keep me grounded keep me from you know all of the you know being a statistic if you look at you know the statistics for burnout and depression and horrible and everything else um what really answers that and and you know it speaks to the successful pastor and the struggling pastor The gospel keeps a successful pastor from getting too big for his britches, for thinking that he's, you know, accomplished all these things. Or if he were to lose them, keeps him, you know, talks him off the ledge. But the struggling pastor, the depressed pastor, the guy in the little congregation, um, the one who's got all kinds of conflicts going on, you know, the gospel comes and tells you, you are justified. You do not have to prove yourself. Um, I just find that really refreshing totally and really empowering yeah
0: so. well in the especially in the beginning of the book chapter one in particular you address some of the unique problems and anxieties that pastors face and so as both a pastor and one who has an increasing platform ministering to pastors what are what are some of the most common problems that you, as a pastor and working with them, see pastors up against what's happening in their or our hearts. Uh, what are the most common obstacles that that you're seeing? Are you see in themes in that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in in, in general, um, I think it's both. It doesn't matter what kind of church you have or how big or little it is. There's always that sort of tendency to do ministry under our own power. So. Um, even if you don't have any problems or what have you, that can you know can sometimes even be more dangerous if you have an easy, comfortable ministry in some sense, because you begin to kind of get um, convinced or, or persuaded uh, or fooled in some way that the things that you're accomplishing or the things that are going on in your church are because you have the right technique or you have the right people or the right. And all those things are great. It's not that you know, uh, ministry happens magically, you know, I mean, the Lord is using, you know, practical means and, you know, people resources and that sort of thing. Um, but just the pride that can, you know, you know, sort of sink in. Um, I think most pastors tend to try to do ministry under their own power.
0: Yeah.
1: And so whether you, I mean, that's true, whether you're successful or not big or little, whatever it is, um, Day to day, we're just thinking, "What do I do with my day? How do I accomplish my goals?" And we measure our success based on what we have done. Sure. Um, and so, I think that's probably the most common thing yeah. that you know across the board, anyway. Yeah,
0: you've mentioned it a couple times, but <clears throat> one of the things I've really appreciated about you from a distance is that, um, despite having a gro- growing platform as an author and a blogger and a speaker, you you pastor. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like a pretty, quote unquote, normal sized church currently, right? Like you're not uh, a mega church pastor. And uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, we live in a Christian culture where a pastor's success tends to be specifically bound to the size of his church in the eyes of many people. And so I think I have a general sense of what you'd say about that. But I'm curious what you think that says about just the current climate within mainstream evangelicalism and and what do you think about size equaling success and and, and like what does that do to the pastor?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I do sort of bristle against the idea of, you know, to kind of take the second part first, sure. that that size equals success. Yeah, um, you know you hear things, you know, in kind of the, the church growth or evangelism stuff. Um, you know, in those books, like healthy things grow. Yeah, um, and that's certainly true. But I think we need to define growth. Yeah. Well, um, but I don't think I think there's some who are um, skeptical of all numeric growth or or what have you. Uh, or who assume that if you have a big church that you're doing church wrong? I'm not one of those that like little churches better. Sure, uh, I'm just one of those that says the size of your church is not necessarily an indication of the health of your church. And I think we see very large churches that have very little gospel, if no gospel in them, as as a caution against that. Uh, at the same time. I'm not one to say if you have a little church, it's because you're being faithful and doing th- doing yeah. things. Yeah, doing you might just well. suck. Like you yeah, might just yeah. It could just, be that yeah. you're terrible yeah. and <laughs> you know, and running people out and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So to me, we need to kind of take size off the table and, and make it neither good or bad. It's a neutral.
0: Yeah.
1: A neutral thing. I think the reason we're so obsessed with size, you know, comes from a lot of places. It's an American thing. Bigger is better. Flashier. Um. You know. Uh, but then there's also the way that. Even in, within Christian culture, not just America, you know, American dream media, but in Christian culture, um, we have our celebrities, we have our spokespeople, that kind of thing, and those guys have their platforms because they've uh, enjoyed a certain measure of success. Um, they're also talented, um, you know, and gifted, and that sort of thing. Um, but we begin to, I think, think that's normal. So instead of saying, you know, the big church is is um, a rare thing. Um, we begin to think that that's really what a church ought to be like. Yeah. And so if you don't have that size, when really if you look at the average size of the congregation in in America, you know, the mega church is, is very much a minority. There, sure. there are like that 1%. many percent. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so a church like, like ours um, or like mine, which, you know, right now is like 120 um, is kind of right there in the sweet spot. Most churches are in that in that range, fifty to like four hundred people, something like that. Yeah. Um, that's normal. But those guys don't aren't the ones that get the book deals and conferences, and you're not podcasting those guys, that kind of thing. Um, so we kind of s- see what is visible as normal. Yeah. Um, and it you know it kind of gives us a distorted view. I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's good. I know one of the greatest challenges <clears throat> that ministry leaders face is. Um, regardless of size of ministry, is just shepherding and leading people through seasons of suffering. And uh, man, I know that suffering has been a, a consistent theme in some of your recent seasons of ministry in your own church. And every pastor knows the overwhelming feeling of really not knowing what to say, how to respond in the midst of that. And so I'm I'm just wondering, like what have been some of the key things that you've learned as you've been shepherding people that you love uh, deeply uh, in your church through some of these really difficult seasons of suffering?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's really been odd. Um, I'll be honest with you. We we've had people in our church, um, who at times have asked things like, is God mad at us because we just, we seem to be getting hit over and over and over again. And for a church, our, our size, this, you know, our small sample size, it just seems statistically that um, it's just unreal. The number of funerals that, that, you know, I've done the people that we've been praying for, um, you know, two, you know, two folks dying of brain tumors within, uh, two months of each other last year. Wow. Um, you know, one, a young man, one, not an old lady, but you know, an older lady, both healthy, you know, otherwise. And, um, you know, we're about to lose another, you know, dear saint here to cancer as well. Um, it, it's just, it's just bizarre that the kind of things we've had, I think, um, first of all, it, it's sanctifying. You never do suffering right. I I just, because we're, you know, human and we're broken people, there's not like, you know, Oh gosh, you just, you handled that perfectly. We have, we have feelings, we have mess, you know, this stuff comes up, but you can suffer well, you you probably can't do it right, but you can do it well. And I, I, I've seen saints really suffer well, um, die well. And, um, one of the things that I've learned is that, um, it, it's okay to not um, have the right things to say or or have things to say. I remember when I first came and one of the first, I mean, it was, I, it was either the first year I was here, uh, maybe the first couple, uh, first two years, a lady in our church, her son, um, drug problem, in and out of jail, um, died of a drug overdose. And this was my first, um, first time in a crime scene. I was there when they pulled his body out and everything. And I thought this was just in the movies. I didn't know that like, you actually— had to identify a body. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you always have to do that, but so I remember sitting with her in the hospital while she waited to identify her son's body and I'm sitting there and I'm holding her hand and um, you know, older lady and and um, I, I had zero clue what to say. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'm thinking I'm a religious professional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should be able to say something. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there thinking, what do I say? And everything that I could think of sounded stupid as soon as it came to my, you know, as soon, as soon as it came to my mouth and I just sat there in silence and I had such feelings of inadequacy. I had such feelings that like I was letting her down because the whole time I'm thinking, she's thinking, why is it my pastor helping me?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but now as we talk, I look back, she doesn't remember that, that I, you know, what I said or didn't say. She remembers I was there. Yeah, that's I good. was sitting by her holding her hand and she wasn't thinking at all about I'm not saying stuff. She was thinking my son has died. And, right. and so I think one thing I've learned is, is what Job's friends got right first was you show up yep. and you shut up. Yeah, And, um, I think that's hard for pastors uh, a lot of times to, you know, to shut up. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think that's one thing I learned is to, is, is to be present first of all, which is sometimes hard in, you know, for professional pastors, I, I suppose. Um, but to let the Spirit do His work, and sometimes for the Spirit to work, you just need to be there. Yeah, That's probably the big thing that I've learned, yeah. I
0: think. No, I think that's really good. Um, <clears throat> we live in such a weird time in church history with technology and social media. And you've, I mean, really, in in so many great ways, have used social media for God's glory and to spread the gospel in your uh, participate regularly in multiple streams of of social media. And so I wanted to talk to you about this. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you to flesh out a bit is in light of the social media thing and how we're all not just connected to our local church any longer, but really in a much more even global way. I want to talk about pastors holding pastors accountable, especially in a public fashion. So uh, earlier this year, many have read, but you wrote a, a blog post about some of the controversy that was surrounding Mark Driscoll the end of which really very much read like an open letter to Mark and that you were pleading with him as a brother. Yeah. And, uh, and I've got a couple questions about it, but the first one is, is just from a principle standpoint, uh, when and why do you think it's necessary to write openly about other pastors? There's sometimes it would be inappropriate. There's other times it might be appropriate. And so I wonder for you, like, when is it, when is that necessary to do?
1: Um, well, I mean, for me personally, um, it's not often necessary. I don't often feel the need. Uh, I think I wade into controversy a bit more often than, than, you know, some guys, some of my friends, but not as often as As a lot of of people seem to do who seem to enjoy it. Um, You know, it's not something that I enjoy. I don't I don't thrive on that at all. Uh, My wife does not like it when when I'm, you know, embroiled in something. And um, so for me personally, I have to really feel like there's something at stake and what is being said, um, either something is not being said or um, what is being said, you know, in my mind does not. Address the full problem, or or what have you. Yeah. So I don't have a you know a sense of like gosh if I don't say something you know things aren't going to change or or what have you. I, yeah. I try not to think as highly about you know myself as that. But when it came to the Driscoll thing, um, I I'll just be honest. I was somewhat bothered that we've been following this trajectory, and Driscoll's you know is a guy that um, I mean I don't know him personally. I've done some work for him. Um, we had corresponded way back like six years ago something like that um, and so I, I had this sort of tangential connection to him but his preaching was really helpful to me in that uh, moment of, of transformation in a way you know it, it's not a you know exaggeration to say his preaching helped save my life yeah really um, so you know I really hold him dear and so um, I had been following this sort of trajectory and just not saying anything about it. And in fact, it was somewhat defensive, you know, for him and, and about him, but it got to the point where I thought we needed to say, and by we, the, the tribe <laughs> who, um, had, you know, in some ways been started by, you know, him, or at least he was sort of on the forefront for us. Yeah. Um, uh, we need to be able to say to younger guys, to the younger generation, It's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that this isn't right. Some of the things that he's doing and saying are not appropriate. And I began to get bothered that nobody was saying that. There's almost like this this big cloud of silence. And at first I could say, well, this is their brother. This is their friend. And um, if I were him, I would appreciate that they're not, you know, you know, killing me, you know, in public and, and that sort of thing. And so I just believe and trusted that there were, you know, brothers behind the scenes pleading with him and helping him. And, and there were, but I came to, you know, understand that he wasn't listening to them. So for me, the concern was not necessarily Driscoll needs to hear this. Um, it was, you know, some of the younger brothers in, in our tribe need to hear this and those outside need to hear that we actually hold our own accountable and aren't just always looking outside at what everybody else is doing wrong. But you know, um, that to me was kind of glaring after yeah. a
0: while. So one of the things I'm <clears throat> that I'm really trying to grow in is like the humility surrounding the reality that I'm like totally incapable of ever understanding anyone's motive <laughs> for why they do what they do. <laughs> yeah. So um, I can't judge them based on motive. You know, yeah. I can, I can where there's a, a sense in which we're supposed to look at fruit and decisions that are made and all of those things, but we're just incapable of understanding motive. And so <clears throat> I'll be honest, in in reading your acknowledgement that mark probably wouldn't see the post um i i like i was i struggled at the time to understand a little bit about like what the benefit of writing it is so i yeah. like when you speak to your to the motive behind it um so your you it wasn't necessarily though the end was sort of pleading with mark your motive wasn't necessarily mark per se or maybe just like what what was the motive specific to like, why did that need to be? And I hear some of the things that you're saying for sure, but why did that need to be said? Um, And why did you need to say it? And just like, I don't know if there's a clear question in the midst of that, but just, you know, maybe a little bit of your heart behind, here's really what my motive was.
1: Yeah, my motive was, you know, this is a brother who um, I, I believed used to magnify Jesus and I believe came to magnify Mark. Um, and I, because of what Mark teaches, I believe that he would be, or should be concerned about that, that he himself would be concerned about that. Um, well, he's he's
0: certainly never been shy about calling people out publicly either. Right,
1: right. Well, and that kind of goes back to like, why, when would you, um, hold someone accountable publicly? Yeah. Um, you wouldn't for private or personal things, but for public remarks, you know, they can deserve a public rebuke. doesn't mean everybody's got to do that or, you you know, every Christian needs to feel obligated to do that, but public, you know, public remarks, public behavior, um, you know, can warrant, you know, public correction. So, I mean, I can tell you how I started, which was, um, you know, I tried to contact him personally. Um, I didn't know that he he would be open to that. And it was in the middle of some stuff going on. I thought he's probably pretty busy anyway, but I did make those overtures through the avenues that I had connections with his assistant and that kind of thing. Um, and got no response, which, um, you know, which, uh, I, you know, I wasn't necessarily surprised by yeah. then I sent that to uh, like six or seven other brothers, you know, guys who know Mark as well. and know me told them to read it. Tell me what you think about this. Um, I mean, I won't tell you who they are, but yeah. most of them are names that you would know and other people would know, um, to say, am I way off base? Is this wrong? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 201 um, you know they all said they thought it was appropriate um, you know one fellow you know told me that it, it wasn't anything that he hadn't said to Mark himself personally so yeah. um, it, it wouldn't have been news it wouldn't have you know <clears throat> um, you know I had one guy who wanted to kind of talk me through what the ramifications might be and all that sort of thing and so like doing
0: um, a podcast six months later and being asked about it again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. No, it had uh, other things, legal yeah. ramifications. Oh, and that yeah, sort of yeah, thing, yeah. I
0: gotcha. Uh,
1: which were which was interesting yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah. So uh, you know, after all of that, you know, I vetted it. It wasn't something like, oh, here's how I feel, blah blah blah. Yeah. Shoot it off. You know what I mean. Um, I wanted to get some other eyes on it, some guys that I trust. And um, and I tried, again, I tried reaching him personally. Yeah. So I put it up. It was addressed to him in, in the hopes that he might read it. But mainly, it, you know, as I said, I, I'd put it up because I wanted other brothers in the tribe, especially younger guys, to know. It's okay to consider Mark kind of off the reservation, not the Christian reservation, but – you know, part of the trajectory I was noticing—you start seeing guys like Perry Noble and Craig Rochelle, and some of them showing up at, you know, at the resurgence. Those are good brothers. They love Jesus. Uh, they love the Lord. They want, um, you know, the lost to be saved. Uh, you know, I have no um, question about their salvation or their sincerity or anything like that. But they're clearly not, um, you know, guys who make the gospel central uh, to their ministry. And so even that I felt like Mark was kind of starting his own tribe in, in a way, starting his own kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And so it was okay for us to go, you know what? He He's not a part of, you know, not farewell, like farewell Rob Bell or yeah. anything like that. Yeah. But um, it's okay to let him go. He wants to go. Yeah. And some of the stuff that Mark was saying was kind of derogatory about the young, restless and reform. He was starting to actually be quite snippy about us. And so it was almost like, it's okay for us to go, you know, all right, Mark is, you know, not in the tribe anymore and, and everything, but also to point out that some of the things he's saying and doing um, do not adorn the gospel.
0: Did you see, or do you see, this is really not even about that anymore, but do you see, <clears throat> here's one follow like if you, if you were, I'm assuming you've had to have multiple conversations about this whole thing, but if you could go back and do it again, would you write the same post again?
1: Um, I think I would make it, um, uh, this is gonna sound odd i would make it stronger about some of the things he had said and done and less about the tribe explicitly um, and in fact that was some of both of the criticism from inside and outside that i heard so from the outside i i was reading people saying oh now you know mark is bad because he's He's against the young, restless, and reformed. It's not this other stuff. Yeah. Um, and then I also heard from inside, you know, some guys who who would say it's going to sound like that. It's going to sound like you're, you know, you're just concerned about his impact on the tribe, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. The brand, yeah. which is not what I was thinking, but I, I see that. Um, and what I find interesting, Ryan, <laughs> I'll, I'll admit, is after his quote-unquote fall, if you want to call it that, yeah the young restless reform guys have no problem whatsoever talking about Mark Driscoll now and what a jerk he is and everything. Yeah. It's almost like they had to wait until some, you know, some big moment. And, um, and now he's, and now he's fair game. And I never talk about him now. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I've been asked um, you know, by a couple of reporters when they were doing stories um, because I was like the only gospel coalition guy to had a post up before yeah. all this stuff if I would comment and um you know I just said no you know those are my comments I don't feel the need to you know come back and pick you know pick bones or or yeah. what have you i I really wish the best f- you know for him um but you know I believe sometimes that the way the gospel works chastisement is uh is one of the ways that God you know brings us back around and and helps us and heals us so
0: yeah um <clears throat> Yeah. For, I mean, it was obviously, it was a really, like like you, he's made a huge impact on my life, his preaching and teaching. I don't think I've told him this. I don't think I would have planted a church uh, had it not been for him. And I definitely, I, I wouldn't have planted the type of church I did if it weren't for him. Uh, and that's, I know that to be true. So it's just a, it's a, been a difficult thing to watch it unfold. And, uh, and yeah. So I guess, uh, do you have... So when you've talked about, you know, writing it for young guys, <clears throat> what, what are some of the the ways that you would counsel? Cause I would, I would, one of my concerns would be that young guys who, you know, don't have access to maybe the level of good godly counsel that you do could walk away from your example in this post and be like, so really the moral of the story is that anytime I see a fault in a, uh, in a, a mega church pastor, I, I should blast off at the mouth via my blog. <laughs> so so how and I'm not saying that you blast I, I I totally understand the care that went into that and the thought and everything but what is there any practical counsel that you would that you would give people because I think there is a perspective that uh, I wonder about this sometimes even within our own tribe like sometimes we we tend to have a, a like to eat our own sometimes. Mm. And we seem very, very concerned, um, with who's in our tribe and who's not. And, uh, and I'm just wondering if you could speak to like, what, what, what would you encourage young guys and in the way that they handle social media and their speech, like, how would you counsel them in the midst of that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, these things ought to be the exception, you know, I think we tune out, uh, or we ought to anyway, um, those who, this is sort of what they do, right? Every blog right. post is an open letter to somebody. right? Um, even if it's not addressing somebody, it's something critical. It's something, um, you see what energizes somebody, what fires somebody up. And so I think I would counsel, um, uh, because it's the gospel that settles us, the gospel that empowers us, the gospel that um, gives us joy, listen to the voices that are pointing you to grace most often. And so when when you do that, When those people criticize somebody, it stands out. You realize this is different. Um, You pay it, uh, you know, you pay more attention to it. It has more, I think, more credibility. Um, You know, when someone who is just constantly pouring out and I'll give you an example. So, uh, you know, just a couple of years ago, um, there were some really, I think, terrible things said about me, um, you know, based on a misunderstanding, a blog post that I had written um, actually, that I hadn't written I was quoting somebody else. Um, and it was a really difficult timing. I mean, there were some really hateful things said yeah. about me. <clears throat> and I got lost in in that. I became defensive because the things they were saying were not true. But I was unable to hear some of the underlying concerns. And one thing I did was like sent that, um, you know, sent a message to you know some brothers I trust and respect and just said, you know, tell me, am I reading this wrong? Am I, am I doing this wrong? Because, you know, there's some critics that, you know, they're never going to like you no matter what you do. And so I just kind of, I'm hearing them, but I've, i I stopped listening to them, but I don't want to tune out criticism period. I don't want to just to think, you know, I'm, you know, uh, um, you know, great. Nobody could ever, you know, right. I, I can and never soluble. have any fault. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> so I had one dear brother, um, right back to me. And he's a guy who never criticizes. Like if you read his stuff online, I won't tell you who he is, but if you read his stuff online, it's just straight gospel period. And he wrote back and said, Jared, I I know exactly what you meant. I know you. And so I know this isn't you. And I wouldn't have said anything except if you asked me, but because of an experience I, you know, I have had some of the things that you posted kind of took me back to, um, you know, this traumatic event in my life. And I know you, so I know you weren't trying to do that and I wouldn't, you know, and that made me go, Whoa, yeah. this, this, and I love this guy, trust this guy, respect this guy. He's not a critical reactive guy. He's saying that that's what really prompted the apology that came out later from me is just like, uh, okay, I, I can see that there's some genuine hurt here. And whether I meant it or not is sort of, you know, beside the point, there was yeah. hurt. Um <clears throat> and so I think we need to listen to those kind of guys because then when they write their open letters, if they ever do, yeah, um, it's much more there's much more credibility, there's a much more integrity there. If you know, don't listen to voices that are always just blasting off. Yeah.
0: Um
1: because then you you know you you become what you look at. And yeah. so if that's what you're constantly drinking in. That's the kind of pastor or leader or writer you're going to be.
0: Yeah, Uh, we had, uh, I had uh, Matt Chandler on and uh, he had this great line that is just continues to rattle around in my heart and head. And he said that um, whether it is preaching or church discipline, the goal is always to win the brother. Yeah. And uh, and I think that just from a motivation standpoint of, of really, especially for guys who are young, um, to, to really ask the question, is my heart and is my motivation to win the brother and yeah. and and not just, you know, I mean, there was a, a day, uh, a season over the last few months that if you put Mark Driscoll's name in anything, it was going to get you a fair amount of clicks And, uh, and I don't sense at all that that was your motivation, but I think just really asking that question is my goal to win the brother. Um, who am I trying to shepherd in the midst of this or protect? Like, I think just having good, honest clarity and then to your point, good people around you that can help speak into that so that it's not just you in an ivory tower making those decisions. So, but I really appreciate you sharing your heart on that, man. It means a lot to me. Um, so I know that you are right in the midst of a big transition that's coming up and, uh, I'm sure that you're learning a lot through this. And, uh, so for people that don't know, you're moving over from your church, Middletown, uh, Springs community church in Vermont and going now to Kansas city and, uh, going to Midwestern. Seminary, And so I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, what are some of the things that you're learning? A lot of pastors and ministry leaders are going to transition their ministries. Yeah. And, uh, and it seems like you hear far more horror stories about like how it doesn't go well than, than really good stories. Yeah. So maybe what have been some things that you're <clears throat> learning or things that are going well for you guys? Because at least from a distance, it seems to be a that the transition is, is going well, all things considered. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well... Yeah, all things considered, yeah. <laughs> it's going well. No, it, it's, um, you know, I, I had high hopes about, um, you know, this sort of, you know, uh, sailing off into the sunset <laughs> kind, <Yeah. laughs> kind of thing. Um, it's disruptive, no matter how much leave time you give, no matter what reason you're leaving. Um, w- one thing that I had to be mindful to do as I read my resignation letter for the first time was to put up. It, you know, really soon in the letter, my reason so that the longer it goes, people, are, their imagination is turning like, you know, what happened to it? Because usually pastors don't leave, um, you know, young pastors don't leave, um, you know, a good growing church anyway, um, for, you know, for neutral reasons, it's True. always an affair or something that's happened. And yeah. so I wanted to make sure I put it up pretty soon because, uh, you know, I didn't want anyone to, you know, to be fearing. And so, you know, I just thought if, you know, Moving on, it's going to be hard. People are going to be sad, disappointed, um, perhaps even angry. And and there's people and and I've got all of that. There's people who are angry. There's people who are sad. People who are disappointed. Um, that kind of thing. Um, but um, even the time that we've given, uh, you know, several months before I actually move, and the reasons that I've given, the help that that I can be in terms of the the transition process pastor search process, all of that sort of thing, it doesn't mitigate um, people's hurt. And um, and so one thing that really I'm trying to navigate is, um, I'll just be honest, something that, that happens is there are, are people who um, they don't like change. And sure. when you start to change things, especially you know, significant things like a pastor leaving, um, you start seeing some idolatry that comes out people's need for control, that kind of thing. And it's not a very pronounced thing, but people who are like that can be very influential even if there's only one or two of them. Um, and so you know the elders are, um, I, I'm trying to navigate how much do I continue to lead Because in some ways you're a lame duck. as soon as you announce your resignation, you've kind of lost a, a lot of credibility and authority, not a credibility, but you lose some authority because you're yeah. the guys going out the door. And that happens to, you know to anybody and, I, and I'd received that counsel, beforehand. So I kind of knew that was coming um, anyway, but how do I lead well while being on borrowed time in some sense? The clock is ticking for me. Um, So trying to figure out how to get the church in the best position, um, hand off the right stuff to the elders. Um, And it's difficult. Our context is difficult because uh, I'm the only staff guy. Um, I'm the only staff person. There's no, I mean, we pay a part-time treasurer, but I'm the only guy in the office. So there's not and you want to be handing things off to, right? Really, um, and so and there's a lot of things I do administratively that people don't even know. I'm, I, you know, I'm just doing it. So a lot of that is trying to figure out how do I delegate this, how do I transition this, what stuff do I let go of before I leave, what stuff do I hold on to until the day that I leave, all of that kind of thing. And um, you know, I'm needing a lot of wisdom that that I don't have that you know the Spirit has to help me with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's never an easy thing for sure, but I know a lot of people have been praying for you, and and uh, so <clears throat> many are really excited about kind of this new role for you, a new chapter yeah. and what it's going to be. But one of the things I like to do uh, on the podcast here toward the end is to, uh, the day before I know I'm going to be having a conversation with someone to put out on social media who I'm going to be talking with and solicit questions. <laughs> okay. And uh, surprisingly, I've not had anything yet that is, uh, like mean spirited or anything like that. <laughs> surprisingly, uh, Yeah. So, uh, I set that out. And so I got a couple random questions for you about ministry, but on Facebook, uh, Derek D Hayes asked, what, 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 if any, are the pastoral responsibilities to the community that the church serves? And uh, how Mm -hmm. should those responsibilities be prioritized? Which I thought was a good question. What do you think about that?
1: Wow, Well, it's something that I've thought a lot about because, you know, I pastor the only evangelical church in our town and it's a community church, which the community has a different view of. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) They they understand that in a different way than the church does, um, what a community church is all about um and so it's something that i've thought a lot about and and you see it a lot in rural areas you see it a lot up here where the pastor the local pastor in some ways becomes kind of like the chaplain for the town in some ways he's not just oh if you want the religious goods and services you go there but something happens in the life of someone in the, in you know in the community whether they're a part of the church or not the pastor um, is you know there's an expectation or at least an opportunity there, you know, to be reaching out, yeah. and especially in unchurched cultures like here, where most families don't have a family pastor, even if they don't go to church. Um, down south, there may be, you know, play, you know families that don't go to church, but you know they're members somewhere, they know someone, and that kind of thing. Um, so I would say, number one, the you know the, the biggest responsibility, you know, simply evangelism. That wherever you are, um, you know, you're seeding, you know, the gospel, and so to be present um in 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 third places a lot um you know and 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 known in that sense yeah and and you earn a lot of credibility that way by being a personable person a present person so whether it's with the school like for us we have you know kids in the local school here so you know um we have the Memorial day parade is on the green. The church actually owns the town green. So, so every year Memorial day parade, I get to open the whole thing up in a prayer in front of the whole town. And so you become almost like this, you know, not political figure, but uh, a known figure in the town kind of thing. Um, You know, I would say the biggest um, opportunity for me has been funerals. Mm -hmm. So, I, I've turned down many, many weddings because I, I see that differently. I you know I don't, for me personally, I don't tend to officiate weddings. I don't think I ever have actually for unbelievers. Um, and so I, I've turned a lot of those down, but I rarely turn down a funeral for a family uh, in the in the community. It's a great opportunity to, you know, first of all, you know, present the gospel to a room full of unbelievers. Sure. But also to minister to a family, to go, you know, they're in the middle of mourning and and grief and they remember that you were there. Um, So those kind of opportunities, ministry opportunities, I, I think are great. If you can open up your building, this is something that we've thought about a lot as well, because we open up our building for different community events. But we've had to be very discerning about what we say yes and no to and We've had to say no to some pretty, um, you know, to some things that have, uh, um, you know, caused some conflict, have caused some dissension in the community that we wouldn't host certain things here. And so I tend to push our church then to go overboard on the other side, say yes to as much as you can, Yeah. get that fellowship hall full of people as often as you can, whatever you guys want to do, blood drives, whatever it is, let's get it here at the church Um, just so we don't get the reputation for being this kind of closed off space.
0: Yeah. Um, Also on Facebook, there was a couple of people that had questions about uh, rhythms. So Scott Slayton, Tom Weaver, both had questions about balancing the various responsibilities of ministry. And uh, one question was, uh, especially for you as a writer, was what are your uh, rhythms for writing in the midst of your responsibilities as a pastor? Like you've written an unbelievable number of books yeah. Um I, I mean by I, I wrote 0. So compared to me you've written quite a few. <laughs>
1: it's unbelievable.
0: So, yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh,
1: so I think it's 10. That's an yeah, unbelievable number. Yeah,
0: it is. Compared to 0. <laughs> okay,
1: uh, okay. So
0: what what are what are your I know it's different for everybody but for you where, where does that yeah. rhythm live for you in the midst of being a husband and dad and pastor?
1: Yeah, this is always like I get this this is probably the question I get the most. Okay. Um and I don't believe that I've ever come up with a good answer, at least one that doesn't sound satisfactory, okay. or that sounds satisfactory to me. Um, what I think people are asking, so um, the answer is I don't know. Because f- for me, writing isn't—it's re- not something that I have to tell myself to do. I'm always writing something, yeah. and I always have since I was like a little kid. Like, yeah. well, it's I, interesting.
0: I, you said earlier that you kind of wanted to be an author originally before yeah. you felt it a call to ministry.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was like first grade um, huh. in the little school books where you write what you want to be when you grow up, favorite subject, favorite food, all that kind of thing. In my first grade little school book, I wrote the word author because I, I loved books. I loved writing stories. And I, and I I remember writing, you know, little stories in the fifth grade and trying to sell them to my friends, yeah. <laughs> like stapling them together and trying yeah. to sell these little books. So, I mean, I've always wanted to write and I've always have written. And so it's not, to me, that's what social media is a lot for as well, um, is just getting that that wheel turning, being able. I just always feel like, you know, it, it helps keep that muscle activated. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, the writerly reflex for me, just getting stuff out. Um, so, I mean, for me, in terms of like the book writing, I can tell you that's a lot a lot of times deadline driven for me. Yeah. I'm like a lot of creatives. I'm a procrastinator when it comes to assignments. So every day I'm writing something, no matter what it is, if it's, you know, sermon, you know, depend, you know, it can be all different kinds of things. Um, but in terms of like actually writing manuscripts and that kind of deal, um, usually you've got six months typically between, uh, you, know, when, uh, you know, when, you know, when you are supposed to begin a book and when you got to turn it in. And I'm usually writing a book in the last couple of months, sometimes okay. the last month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> As long uh, as it gets in, man, who cares? Right.
1: And that's a bad rhythm. I mean, that's an unhealthy, you know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the right answer is, you know, from 8 to 10 a.m. every morning, I sit down and write, and that's all I do. And that's yeah. my writing time. And uh, You're right. This not- is
0: a horribly unhelpful answer because <laughs> what I hear you saying is that you're just like awesome at it. And so it's just like writing just flows out of you.
1: Right. But now there's other things. Oh, well, I don't know about the awesome part, but okay. it, it does. It does. I yeah. mean, um, I just have always written. So. Sure. I don't have to like tell myself to do that. I have to tell myself to meet deadlines, that kind of thing, Yeah. but just the work itself. But now there's other things that I have to make myself do, like yeah. answer voicemails and, you know, um, and there's things that I just don't do because I'm not good at them right. um, that, you know, a lot of pastors need to do. So um,
0: I do think that the, if you want to be a writer to write something every day, that, that, piece of counsel in and of itself is really yeah. helpful. You know, a lot of the number of people that want to be authors and don't and have not written anything is exponential. So
1: Yeah, no, and I, I mean I could talk about that to the Cows Come Home too. The the loss of the writer class and evangelicalism. Um and it ties into the I think the question about platform and um and and what have you, because we only want to read books from guys who have who are names And a lot of those guys are not good riders. They may, you know, they may be excellent preachers or leaders. Um, And so we've devalued the talented, gifted, no name guy who's an amazing rider and we'll never hear him. You know? Yeah.
0: Well, last question. There's two Uh, on Twitter. uh, Andrew Brantley asked, "Um, are you going to be a Chiefs fan now that you're moving to Kansas City? (laughs) So clearly, he doesn't follow you on Twitter.
1: Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I like the Chiefs. I, I actually, I, you know, I like Alex Smith a lot. Um, if they're not playing the Patriots, yeah, then you can be you a Chiefs know, fan. Right, and if the game has no has no you know bearing on on you know how the Patriots are doing, then I'd be glad to root for the Chiefs. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, already his, do. All right. Well, his <laughs> uh, his serious question was uh, a personal one, just around. Okay. Do you have any anxiety surrounding the move from pastoral ministry to the seminary world?
1: Um, I don't know if anxiety is the word. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to a dear brother who's ways down the road for me um, spiritually, um, you know, age wise as well as I was contemplating before I made this announcement and everything as well, just to get some advice. And, um, you know, he was saying that in his own ministry role, he had been handing off a lot of preaching. So, you know, he's the lead guy at his church, but mm-hmm. he was starting to share the pulpit more. And he said, I didn't realize how much preaching was my identity until I started contemplating giving it up. Yeah. And that hit me right <laughs> in the heart because I don't think I realized how much pastoral ministry had become, has become my identity until I felt like God was asking me to set it aside. Um, and that became a, you know, kind of a crisis point for me because I started thinking of the questions and the criticisms people would have like, um I thought you were the New England guy. Yeah. I thought I thought you were the Rural Church guy. I thought you were the pastoral ministry guy and and then I started thinking am I am I going to make decisions based on what I fear people will say and um is is my identity in Christ or is it in being Jared Wilson the New England advocate or whatever it is. Yeah. And so my anxiety, if we can call it that, is just a lot with um am I okay with stepping out of pastoral ministry, hopefully just for a season. I mean, the seminary has been really sweet to me that, you know, they've, they've given me the freedom to pursue a local role. If I, you know, if that's what I, you know, um, decide to do, um, you know, it wouldn't be in a full-time capacity. Maybe it's just as a lay person, you know, as before, you know, it'd be fine. I do you know feel like God has gifted me and called me, um, you know, to ministry in in that way, but it, you know, I don't have a, a you know, a box that I want to put that in and say, this is what it must look like. So um, I think that's where the anxiety is, is just being able to rest in Christ.
0: Good. All right, man. Well, I just want to say thanks for taking your time to do this. I appreciate it. I know I'm praying for you. A lot of people are praying for you in this transition. Uh, We'll have links up to your blog and Twitter and most recent books of the unbelievable number of books that you've
1: written. (laughs) We'll just put the
0: links to all the unbelievable numbers of books that you've written uh, in that. But, uh, but yeah, man, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Ryan. It's been good.
0: Man, I really appreciate Jared's willingness to discuss his motivation behind the the post that he wrote about Mark Driscoll. And I'll be honest, uh, personally, I still really struggle with the necessity of utilizing social media in this manner. So the only time I would do it is if I was concerned that a particular pastor or preacher was teaching something that I believed fundamentally was going to be damaging to the faith of the people that I pastor. So if I don't have a personal relationship with the person or some amount of authority in their life, I personally want to choose to trust God and the people that that pastor is accountable to. But you know, the whole point of In the Room is conversation. So what do you think? And what was the one thing that stuck out to you? Uh, You can share your thoughts using the hashtag In the Room. And as always, I'd love to connect with you on my blog at RyanHugley.com and also on Twitter at at RyanHugley. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and help me spread the word. So if you enjoyed this episode, it would be a huge help if you could take just a second and leave us a review on iTunes. We'll be back next week with episode number seven in my conversation with Carlos Whitaker. He hosts one of the most popular blogs that I'm aware of over at ragamuffinsoul.com, and he does about a million other things that I'm really looking forward to talking with him about. So until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening.